following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. The Chiefs are playing today at 2 o'clock. So I'm planning on preaching for about four and a half hours today. Um, um, I can tell you something. I am a Chiefs fan. And I am, I am very, very glad. I know this will sound strange, but the last time the Chiefs lost a football game was to the Titans. I don't know if you knew that or not, who they're playing today. And um, the thing about that is I'm glad they lost. I am. I'm glad that, that Derek came in like ran all over them and over every, like just ran and ran and ran and ran. Um, because there is always danger in underestimating an opponent. And when you get your eyes fixed out there a little ways at a goal, sometimes you can overlook what stands right in front of you. I mean, I played football in seventh grade, folks. I know. I speak from experience, okay? When I tell you that you got to be careful and you don't want to underestimate an opponent. You just don't want to do that. You'll get beat. So you got it. So I'm glad the Chiefs got beat last time around because you don't want to underestimate an opponent. But you know what's more problematic than underestimating an opponent? I'll tell you a couple things. One thing that's very much more problematic than that is underestimating myself, underestimating yourself, underestimating ourselves. But what is much, much, much more problematic than that is underestimating our God. There's, there's a lot of problems with that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the writer of a large chunk of our New Testament, the Apostle Paul was very much, no, he was no stranger to seeing God show up. He saw it. Multiple times. And we hear about some of those times in his life. And one of those times we can read about, I told you, we'll come back to Ephesians chapter 3, but turn just a few pages before it, all right? To 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, you'll be lost if you go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It'll just be a few pages. You got 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. So we'll get back to Ephesians very quickly here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. This is Paul speaking. And Paul's speaking, uh, well, I don't want to get too much into it. I don't want to get the, the cart in front of the horse. So, so let's, just, let's just read it here. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. They knew more about these details than we know now. Just understand that. Okay? But we can get a little bit of a picture of what's taking place here when we look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you, and Paul's not alone in this. He had companions, whether it was Silas or whether it was Timothy. We don't know. But he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Remember that for just later. Remember that. Beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. 
Like I said, we don't know all the details of the situation that Paul is talking about here. But it's pretty clear that it was dire straits for Paul and his companions. And in their minds, the only outcome of their situation, their scenario, was death. I mean, they even said, they even said, God does raise the dead, though, but that was the only thing that they could see as the end to what was in front of them right then, death. But here's the thing. God saw it differently. And God showed up, and as a result of that, Paul's confidence grew. And Paul's confidence, not in himself, but his confidence in his God. JB, he just did it a few minutes ago, and he's been doing it every Sunday for several years now. Right after we talk about being, bringing, and building, he talks about ministry. And he says it in this way. I'm I'm paraphrasing what he says because he paraphrases every week. He never says it exactly the same. Um, But what it amounts to is God has a ministry for you. Are you praying about that? Are you looking towards that? Are you asking what God wants you to do? If you don't know... Pray about it. And as JB said today, and we'll say more than once today, those are prayers that God loves to answer. God, what do you want from me? Let me tell you something. When he, it's not if, it's when. And when God reveals what he wants you to do to you, most likely the task will be one that you're not going to be completely comfortable with. And the thought of it is going to make you Very uncomfortable. And the question that we have to ask ourselves when God places that before us, within us, is this. Okay, we're uncomfortable now. God is speaking. He he wants me, he wants us to do this. It seems very clear. I've been praying about this for a long time. What is next? Let me tell you something. Just a little bit of practical advice about, I've had the, the privilege of experiencing this in my life. There is a very big advantage to people who have had the privilege of being able to go on a missions trip. Whether it be a longer missions trip, whether it be a short-term missions trip. Tell you what, you want a challenge? Go on a missions trip. You know, JB and I were talking about this week how how there's one destination that he and I have very much in mind and and we probably need to to go there. Um, just to kind of get a footprint there and see what everything is about there to be able to more encourage those of us here to go. And I'm not talking about a vacation. I'm talking about a missions trip. There are some things about a missions trip that I can tell you full, with full confidence that you will, you will experience. You will be uncomfortable. You will be challenged. You can be changed. I'm not saying you will be changed. I'm saying you you can be. You see, a missions trip typically, for those in this room who have experienced this before, will tell you a missions trip isn't an end. It's typically a beginning of God doing something in and with your life. Those who go will have an advantage. Now, don't get me wrong. You can serve God in, in, in unsettling ways and kind of frightening ways right here and now. But, but there's an, those who go on a mission trip have an advantage that many will never know. And I've kind of put that out in, in this, this format, in the format of a formula. Don't you like formulas? 
I'm not talking about the baby stuff. I'm talking about algebra. All right? Here you go. Here you go. First of all, this is kind of the way a missions trip works. First of all, you've got the unknown. You've got a level. Even if you're told about it, you haven't experienced yourself. You, you don't know until you've gone. So you've got the unknown, and you combine that, add to that, service. Because you're going to serve. You're going with very clearly in your mind, you're going to be a blessing to someone else. Now, here's the deal. You usually come away from a mission trip feeling a little different than being a blessing to others. More about that here in just a second. So you have the unknown. You have serving as a part of that. And then you got trust. Because you got to trust in God if you're going to serve about something that's very unknown to you. So you take those things, you add them together, and what you get is, first of all, blessing. That's the thing. You go expecting to bless someone else, and what you come away with is feeling like the most blessed person in the world. It's just what happens. But the other thing that happens is you come away with confidence, with growth. Just like Paul, not necessarily confidence in yourself. Although there might be a small part of that in that, it's more confidence in your God. That being said, two questions that we all need to ask ourselves on a consistent basis if we're followers of Jesus. Question number one. Has serving Christ ever felt beyond my strength? Did you catch that in first, our second Corinthians chapter one? Paul was at a place, he and his companions, it was beyond them. Like their strength was not going to, it was done. They were, they were, They didn't have enough. Has serving Christ ever felt beyond my strength? Like, I can't do this on my own. Question number one. Question number two. What has my devotion to Christ really, really cost me? I'm not talking about a checkbook register here. That can play a a role, but not the role I'm talking about. I'm talking about what have I sacrificed? Because of my devotion to Jesus Christ. All right, let's turn from 2 Corinthians and go over two books over to Ephesians, the middle of it, Ephesians chapter 3. If I was to take Ephesians chapter 3, the passage we're going to look at, um, it's the last part of chapter 3 and summarize it, it looks something like this don't underestimate God. Okay? What we find in the middle of Ephesians is this. We, we have Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's giving them instruction. He's also trying to encourage them because they're worried about him. He's in prison, okay? and they are worried about him. And so he's trying to encourage them. He, he's trying to instruct them. And then right in the middle of it, we get this amazing prayer. One of the most amazing, intense prayers that we're going to find in all of the Bible. And it begins in verse 14. Before we get to our passage today, this is just kind of the end of the prayer. We need to look at what the prayer is about. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. And this is what it says. For this reason, Paul speaking, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. That's Paul's way of saying I'm praying. All right. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Wow, Paul prays for a lot there, folks. I mean, that's a big, big prayer. Let's see what he prays for. He prays for the Ephesians to be strengthened on the inside within by the power of the the Holy Spirit, by the power of God's Spirit. And then he follows that, that, that the Ephesians, that they would, that Christ might dwell in their hearts. Now, that's kind of interesting to me because this is written to a church. And so many times we tie the, the, the Jesus and hearts to conversion and just kind of leave it there. When, when, matter of fact, even Revelation chapter 3, the letter written to the church in Laodicea is where, you, you've, I think you've probably heard that before, is Jesus speaking, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens up that door to me, and so on and so forth. And, and tie that, guys, both of those were written to churches. These are people who are already Christians. So he's praying, he's praying that they would have Jesus fully within them. That he would dwell there. And then he says, he prays that the Ephesian church would be rooted and grounded, anchored by love. He prays for them to deeply know and understand the love of Jesus Christ. And then get this. Finishes the prayer of what he wants them to have in this way. That they may be filled up, topped off, saturated, filled to the absolute brim. Filled up with God. I mean, folks, that is a powerful prayer. But the prayer is not over yet. And we look at the last two verses and what do we find there? We find the closing to this prayer in our passage of scripture for today. This is how Paul concludes his prayer. He says, Now to him who is able to do, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul writes what he wants for the church in Ephesus. And we just looked at that. That was quite a list. And then he goes beyond it and says, God, do even more than what I've just prayed. Do more than I could ever possibly imagine for these people, my brothers and sisters in Ephesus. And the thing that's crazy about this, Paul writes all of this while he's in prison. He's in prison praying for people to be filled with God and his love and his power. And he says, God, and I know that I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not imaginative enough to understand what you want for these people. You do far more than anything we can ask and think. I was, I was studying this passage this week, and there was one commentator who, who talked about this in this way. I don't remember who it was because it was like a commentator quoting a commentator. Most commentators are quoting other commentators, and you just boil it back down, and it's like quoting, 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 quoting. Um, and, and what you see here is, is somebody, I wish I could tell you who, said this. This is why he kind of broke down the end of this prayer, and I really like it. He said this. This is what God can do. 
Say, God, first of all, can do all we ask. Secondly, God can do all we dare not ask but merely imagine. Thirdly, he can, God can do more than we imagine. Fourthly, he can do far more, very far more than all we imagine. The wording that is used by Paul in this, and like I said, I'm reading from the American Standard. In verse 20, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Literally, what that phrasing would bring to mind is like this spring overflowing that nothing could contain what's coming out of this spring. It is literally beyond and overflowing. That's what God can do through his people. So bearing all of that in mind, we must ask ourselves, with this type and this level of power behind us, what are we doing for God? As a church? As individual followers of Jesus Christ? What are we doing for God. The thing about God, because he is so big, he is so powerful, his plan is so amazing, he is all of that. He could do, he could have done, and he could do all the work himself. When it comes to salvation, God did the work. Because none of us or anybody who ever lived in this world could get the job done. So God, through his son, had to get the job done by paying the penalty for sin, by dying on a cross. God did that. Not through us. He did that. And God could do all of the work in the similar fashion by himself. Here's the deal, though. He chose to work through men and women. He chose to work through Priscilla and Aquila. The wife-husband team. They always put her name first. He continues to work through people. God could still do all the work by himself, but he chooses to work through people, you and me. What are we doing for God? If we're not doing what we could be for God, what is lacking? His presence? No. His concern? No. His plan? No. His power? No. That's all there. It's all available. What is lacking many times is our confidence in him. And therefore, our lack of cooperation. Folks, you, and I'm talking to you as individuals. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have not yet adequately imagined what God would like to do through you. And neither have I. You could, you could paint a really big picture of what God is going to do through you and it will not be big enough. He will do more and he can do more than our imaginations can conjure if we would just cooperate. These are the questions we must ask ourselves. Who will God win through me? Who will God win through you? 
Who will see his love through me? Who will see his love through you? Who will receive his blessing through me? Who will receive his blessing through you? Will it happen at home? Will it happen at work? Will it happen at the ball game? Will it happen at the lake? Will it happen at Walmart? Everybody goes to Walmart. Will it happen at school? Will it happen at prison? Will it happen in a hospital? If you can imagine it, he can do more. If you can dream it, he will blow those dreams out of the water. Look again at Ephesians 3.16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And then he follows that up in verse 20 again with this. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works where? Within us. There's something, I don't think we forget it in our minds, but I think we forget it in our practical way that we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. And what we forget is what God has done for us. What I mean by that is this. The very first gospel sermon ever preached. Very first one. Gospel never been preached before. Ever. Acts chapter 2. You got Paul and the other apostles. They're up preaching the gospel for the first time ever. People from all over the the world, Jews and proselytes from all over the world were there for the day of Pentecost and for that feast. And what you have taken place there is they're preaching the gospel in their own language that they knew, but all the people out there are hearing it in their own various languages through the power of the Holy Spirit. We kind of get the focus on Peter here, but he wasn't the only one preaching. Understand that. But Peter gets to the conclusion of that sermon. You know how he concludes that sermon? Oh, wow. It's pretty powerful. He says, you killed him. I'm paraphrasing here some, okay? But he said that that guy that was hung on a cross, he's not dead anymore. He arose. He's in heaven with his father. His glory has taken place. The spirit has been given. You killed him. And the people are like, says they're cut to the heart. And they say, what do we do? You know what Peter tells them to do? He says, repent. Change. Take yourself off the throne of your life and put Jesus there. That's what repentance means. It says, repent and be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. But that's not it. That's not all of it. That you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've done that. You've got the Spirit of God living within you now. And that is a power that is beyond our imagination. If you can imagine it, he can do more. If you can dream it, he will blow those dreams out of the water because God is living, residing within you to get the work done. Technically speaking, it's still God working because God resides within through his Holy Spirit.
he's got big plans. Year was 1870. 1870. Now, this might come as a shock to my brother-in-law, but I wasn't alive. I just read about this, okay, Mike? Years 1870, and there was was a Methodist convention taking place in Indiana, okay? Um, So all the churches within the state were gathered there, and they were gathered. I do not know the name of the college or the name of the college president. I do know some names you'll find out here momentarily. But they're having this convention there in Indiana at this college, and the college president gets up to speak. He's addressing the crowd. Big crowd there. He's addressing the crowd. And he says, he says, this is an exciting age that we're living in. So this is an age of invention. And this is the end of the 19th century. It was an age of invention. There were pretty amazing things happening. And, and he, said, he said, I believe, I believe we will see men fly in the sky like birds. That's what he said. And he said, he followed that in, in this way. He said, just Imagine, this is what, well, I should tell you this. He was going to go this direction with what he said next. He got interrupted. More about that here in just a second. But he was going on to say, what can God do with that? I mean, to be able to get over the seas, the oceans, to to get to places with the gospel. But before he could go on with that exciting part of his message, the bishop spoke up. Now, the bishop was, was pretty high in charge within the, the Methodist denomination in that state and over an entire region, had some authority there, and he spoke up, and he said, hey, hey, he said, we won't have language like that here. He said, that's, that's getting close to heresy. He said, he said, flight is reserved for angels. That's what he said. Flight is reserved for angels. I don't know where this took place. I don't know the name of the college president. Guess what I do know? I know the name of the bishop. And his name was Bishop Milton Wright. Who had two sons. Named Wilbur and Orville. We serve a big God. We serve a God who wants to work through us in ways beyond our imagination. We serve a God whose greatest, one of his greatest desires is for us to ask him and tell him, I am at your disposal. How do you want to use me? And when we pray prayers like that, we pray him to a God who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory to the church and to Christ Jesus in all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the God we serve. Would you please stand with me? We serve a big God. You serve a big God. A God that wants to take you and do something with you. And it is a, the privilege of all privileges to be worthy to be used by God. And the only reason we are worthy to be used by Him is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 